If you'd like to hear this show without ads, there's an ad-free RSS feed available for my Patreon supporters. Go to patreon.com slash seanmunger, and if you become a patron, I'll let you know how to get the ad-free feed of Second Decade in your podcatcher of choice. And it'd be great to have the support. Had the people of the United States been educated in different principles, had they been less intelligent, less independent, or less virtuous, can it be believed that we should have maintained the same steady and consistent career or been blessed with the same success? They will choose competent and faithful representatives for every department. It is only when the people become ignorant and corrupt, when they degenerate into a populace, that they are incapable of exercising the sovereignty. Usurpation is then an easy attainment, and a usurper soon found. James Monroe, 1817 200 years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge, and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 1, The Election of 1816. This episode was originally recorded in October 2016, just as the United States was approaching the end of an unusually acrimonious national election. 2016 is believed to be an unusually important election. Just about every election, some candidate or another says, this is the most important election in your lifetime. We hear that every time. In 2016, there's ample reason to believe that it was actually true for once. But that's what candidates say, whether it's true or not. Do you ever wonder what it would be like to have an election that's not that important, where nobody really cares much who wins, that's not filled with all kinds of acrimony? There was such an election, and it happened 200 years ago, in 1816, during the second decade of the 19th century. In that election, James Monroe, the fifth president of the United States, was elected to his first of two terms, following the two terms of his predecessor, James Madison. Monroe was from the Democratic-Republican Party, yes, that's what it was called, and the election was such a snoozer that the opposition party, the Federalists, didn't even bother to officially nominate a candidate. Imagine that, one of the two national political parties just deciding to take a bye and sit out a national election for President of the United States. It's pretty much unthinkable today. How this bizarre situation happened is the subject of this episode. But I don't want to give you the wrong impression. The election of 1816 might have been kind of a snooze, but that doesn't mean that it was unimportant. 
and indeed, some pretty unique and unusual things happened during that year. For the most part, they've been overlooked by historians. You might find some of them quite interesting. So let's go back in time now, 200 years, to the second decade of the 19th century and the year 1816. The story of the election of 1816 begins, as most election stories do, long before the actual year. The second decade of the 19th century was an incredibly momentous and important time in history, not just in the United States, but globally. The first half of the decade was dominated by the later stages of a world war, or really a series of wars. We call them the Napoleonic Wars, but they really constituted a world war, just as much as the official world wars of 1914 and 1939 were world wars. So that's where I'm going to start this story, with the World War. Western civilization, and especially Europe, was consumed by a series of military conflicts that grew out of the French Revolution of 1789. The fighting really got going in 1793, when Great Britain and revolutionary France went to war, and the killing didn't stop, except for a brief pause here and there, for 22 years. The exact nations on the various sides tended to shift over time, except for the fact that whenever active hostilities were going on, Britain and France were always on opposite sides. In 1812, toward the beginning of our subject decade, the United States became involved in this world war. We call it the War of 1812. If this podcast goes to series, which I very much hope it will, I'll probably be doing a lot of episodes on the War of 1812. Most Americans know very little about it, except that it's the source of our national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. There's a lot more to it than that. Suffice it to say for now, the United States Congress in June 1812, the same month Napoleon invaded Russia, declared war on Great Britain. This was a deeply controversial and divisive decision. Britain was the U.S.'s number one trade partner, or at least it had been. A number of laws leading up to the war had been passed, effectively embargoing American goods from the British market. New England, and especially its trade ports like Boston, were very hard hit by the war. Politically, New England was dominated by Federalists, the old party of John Adams. They were the party out of power. Since Adams lost the presidency in the election of 1800 to his rival Thomas Jefferson, a Democratic-Republican, that party had controlled the national political scene, but New England was still heavily Federalist. It was the South and West, states controlled by Democratic-Republicans, that wanted the war. Federalist states like Massachusetts and Connecticut very much wanted President James Madison, a Virginian and a Democratic-Republican, to fight the war without any help from them. New England states repeatedly resisted calls from the national government to contribute their state militia to the national army. In effect, New England sat out the war. In late 1814, the third year of the war, Massachusetts Governor Caleb Strong, a Federalist, led the call for New England state legislatures to send delegates to a special convention in Hartford, Connecticut, to discuss, quote, grievances, as well as how to organize there, the New England state's, common defense. On December 15, 1814, the delegates met at the Old State House in Hartford, Connecticut, incidentally a place believed by many to be haunted. Amidst the chilly gloom of a New England December, 26 men met in secret session, talking politics in front of roaring fireplaces. 
Behind the scenes, though, one major issue stalked the Hartford Convention, secession. Most of the guys who met at the old state house, those staunch Federalists, were pretty moderate. However, what they called their country friends, like lawyer and prolific pamphleteer John Lowell Jr., were so opposed to the war that they liked the idea of breaking New England off from the rest of the U.S., especially the West. The conservative Federalists at the Hartford Convention weren't in favor of something so rash, but it's likely they at least discussed secession. We don't know for sure because the delegates were very good at keeping their work secret. In the end, the final report of the Hartford Convention says nothing about secession. It's mostly a laundry list of proposed constitutional amendments. But the PR damage was done. Democrats were keen on painting their Federalist rivals as pro-secession. The feelings of those country friends were well-known and printed in Democratic newspapers. When the convention met in December, the Hartford town crier led a small group of troops in a procession around the State House, playing a death march on muffled drums. Democrats also flew their flags at half-mast to protest what they saw as a treasonous act. Ironically, the very week the Hartford Convention met in mid-December 1814, over in Europe, John Quincy Adams, U.S. Ambassador to Great Britain, was then finalizing the negotiations with British diplomats to sign an armistice ending the war between the U.S. and Britain. That deal was signed on Christmas Eve 1814 in the city of Ghent, Belgium but the news didn't reach the U.S. until February, not until after General Andrew Jackson won a military victory over British forces at New Orleans, largely by the skin of his teeth. Bad timing, Federalists, really bad timing. With the war over, the peace was announced and quickly ratified in February 1815, the members of the Hartford Convention, and by association the Federalists, were tarred, fairly or not, as being advocates of treason and disunion. The Democrats were already in control nationally, but the Federalists, in the form of the Hartford Convention, handed their rivals on a silver platter exactly enough rope to hang what was left of the Federalist Party. So this was the political landscape on the eve of the 1816 presidential election. The Democratic-Republican Party was still firmly in control of the White House and both houses of Congress. Keep in mind that the White House and the Capitol had been burnt down during the war, in 1816, the president was living at a mansion called the Octagon House, and Congress was meeting in a temporary building that came to be known as the Old Brick Capitol. But aside from this lingering physical damage, the war was over, and the Madison administration pulled enough sugar out of the Ghent deal to be able to spin it as an American victory. That meant a return to trade, and a return, at least in theory, to economic prosperity. Not bad for a party going into a presidential election year, and especially for a party that had already controlled the White House for 16 years, or 14 until it got burnt, and add two more for the Octagon House. One curious thing about the Hartford Convention, though, the fifth of their proposed amendments to the U.S. Constitution was a measure that every president had to be from a different state than his immediate predecessor. Now doesn't that seem strange? Not if you look back at the four presidents there had been since the Constitution came online in 1789. Three of them were from Virginia, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison. The one outlier, John Adams, was from Massachusetts. Furthermore, it seemed likely that the heir apparent to the Democratic presidential nomination, Madison's likely successor, was Secretary of State James Monroe, who was, wait for it, from Virginia. Let's talk about James Monroe. 
Not too many people do these days. He's one of our more obscure, dare I say boring, presidents. He was the very last of the American Revolution generation to occupy the White House, and even then just barely. He was 16 when the Revolution broke out. In 1776, Monroe dropped out of the College of William and Mary to join the Continental Army. He never went back to finish his degree. The decision to join up almost ended James Monroe's life. He crossed the Delaware with George Washington. Yes, he's depicted in the famous Emanuel Leutze painting, which you've seen on stamps and in your history books. He's the one in the boat carrying the flag. At the Battle of Trenton, some Brit pumped a lead ball into Monroe's shoulder. A doctor saved his life just barely, and then he went back home to Virginia to study law under Thomas Jefferson. Long resume and one typical of a Virginia gentleman of the revolutionary generation. If there was such a thing as a party apparatchik in revolutionary America, Monroe was it. Virginia State House, 1782, U.S. Senator, 1791, Ambassador to France, 1794, Governor of Virginia, 1799, U.S. Ambassador to the Court of St. James, that means U.S. Ambassador to Great Britain, 1803. Monroe was a loyal party man and very useful to his friends, who were very useful to him. His two besties were Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, both presidents of the United States, so Monroe was pretty well set. Slavery. Of course, we've got to talk about slavery. If this podcast gets going, we're going to be talking a lot about slavery. Remember I said that four of the first five presidents were from Virginia. That meant four of the first five were slave owners. Monroe had a plantation, two actually, Highland and Oak Hill. There were 30 to 40 slaves at Highland in its heyday, if you can call it that. Monroe himself was pretty disengaged from the business of running slave plantations. His overseers did that brutally. Not that there is any kind of slavery that isn't brutal. In 1800, while Monroe was governor of Virginia, a slave named Gabriel fermented a major rebellion in Virginia. Gabriel is sometimes known as Gabriel Prosser, but it's doubtful he really had that name. In any event, the plan was that he and a group of followers would take over Richmond, grab a high-value hostage, and ransom him for their freedom. The proposed hostage was James Monroe. Unfortunately for Gabriel and friends, a sudden cloudburst spoiled their plans. They postponed, and during the postponement, white authorities got wind of their scheme. So did James Monroe. He called out the militia, and the response was, well, disproportionate. None of the slaves had killed anybody, but they were tried without a jury. African Americans had no right to trial by jury in 1800, and the state of Virginia executed at least 26 of Gabriel's co-conspirators. Little else scared white Southerners more than the idea of a slave rebellion. This was the man whose turn seemed to be up. Federalist critics spoke of a Virginia dynasty, an essentially monarchical succession of presidents, each hand-picking his successor. They weren't that far off. Monroe was next in line of succession, but even with the Federalists in disarray, at least at the national level, his election wasn't a slam dunk. The party nomination process was very different in those days. It wasn't by national convention, which was the mainstay of the later 19th and early 20th century eras of boss politics, and it was light years away from the primary election process we have now. It also wasn't very democratic, by that I mean small d democratic. Essentially, a party's nominee was chosen by a group, a caucus, of that party's congressional representatives. Just to give you a sense of how this would work if we had this system today, 
Consider if there were no primaries, no debates, no Iowa caucus, no palm-pressing and baby-kissing in cold parking lots in New Hampshire in February, no balloon drops or people in boater campaign hats holding signs with states' names on them in big indoor stadiums. None of that. Imagine if a group of congressional delegates got together in a hotel ballroom somewhere in Washington and took a bunch of secret ballots to decide who their nominee would be. No one would necessarily be off the table. Then again, no one would have any particular claim to the nomination based on popular votes or a mandate. The election itself was an afterthought. States in those days voted on different days and with different procedures. It wasn't any kind of national popular referendum. The whole game was about electors, members of the Electoral College, which is not an educational institution. It's a convocation of party hacks pledged to vote their party's official candidate on whatever day their state decides they'll vote. In nine states, people didn't even vote for president at all. Their electors were chosen by state legislatures. In ten states, there was some form of popular balloting for the electors. Virginia was one of these. But with Democrats in control of most of the big states, the election was a foregone conclusion. Whoever the Democratic-Republican Party decided to nominate would win. It was that simple, and everyone knew it. Thus, early in 1816, Congressional Democrats didn't really put choosing a presidential nominee very high on their to-do list. Among the measures considered in the second session of the 14th Congress, which had been elected in the off-year elections in 1814, was closer to home and more consequential, raising their own salaries. On the face of it, when I say it in that way, it sounds like corruption. But in all fairness, members of Congress in 1816 needed a pay raise. They hadn't had one since 1789, when the Constitution came online, unless you count a slight adjustment to senators' pay in 1795. Today we have congressional salaries, but they didn't then. In 1816, if you served in Congress, you got a per diem. That was it. The U.S. House of Representatives per diem was $6 a day. For senators, it was 7 At the Constitutional Convention of 1787, a few members of Congress in 1816 were still around to remember it, the idea of paying representatives was a big deal, because supposedly it meant that ordinary people could serve in Congress instead of those who were independently wealthy, which was what it was like for members of Parliament in Britain who don't get paid. But still, you aren't going to make a living on $6 a day, especially in a time like 1816, when the cost of living had gone up greatly since 1789. In the previous year, 1815, Congress had studied the problem of perhaps raising members' pay, but they didn't want the bad PR of proposing a salary hike for themselves during wartime. Now the war was over, and they looked at the proposal again. The business of passing bills was as much sausage-making in 1816 as it was today, even more so, considering the 14th Congress was much more productive than the Congresses we have 200 years later. I'll spare you the gritty details, but suffice it to say, in mid-March 1816, Congress passed a bill, the Compensation Act of 1816, that for the first time in American history established a salary for sitting members of Congress, $1,500 a year, or the equivalent of about $21,000 in 2015 dollars. The Senate sent the final bill to President Madison on March 14, 1816. The next order of business? Oh yeah, that little matter of the party caucus to figure out who's going to be the Democratic-Republican presidential nominee. The official caucus met two days later on March 16, 1816. 
there had already been some intra-party wrangling going on before that date. Influential Democrats knew that President Madison favored James Monroe for the nomination, though he hadn't officially endorsed him. The Virginia dynasty stuff was toxic enough to keep Madison from appearing too closely tethered to Monroe. The Congress had just passed the Compensation Act, raising their own salaries. Now they turned their attention to choosing the next President of the United States. On March 16, 1816, the Democratic Caucus met. The Virginia delegation, of course, favored Monroe. The Democratic hacks from Virginia not only had the blessing of the guy at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but also the previous tenant, Thomas Jefferson, who was then battling chronic near-bankruptcy in his retirement at Monticello in Virginia, while occasionally penning letters to John Adams that get read a lot in PBS documentaries. Not everybody was super happy with Monroe, though. Some Democrats looked around for an alternative, any alternative, that they might be able to sell to the congressional leadership. Good luck, but it was worth a try, especially if they could break the Virginia dynasty. So, how about Daniel D. Tompkins? Aside from having an awesome name, Tompkins was young, only 42, and handsome, and he was a popular governor of New York. Oh, and about that name, the D didn't stand for anything. Tompkins added it to his name in 1795 while at Columbia College, now Columbia University, to distinguish himself from another guy named Daniel Tompkins, who was there at the same time. Democrats from New York really wanted Tompkins to be president, and they said so. The New York State Legislature, or at least the Democrats in it, nominated him for president on Valentine's Day, 1816, for what it was worth, which wasn't much. Tompkins himself didn't really want it. He was running for re-election as governor of New York. He told people he'd agree to be vice president as long as he could stay governor of New York at the same time. Yet you could do that in 1816. So with Tompkins a lukewarm candidate at best, and with zero name recognition outside of any territory where today you can't buy a New York State lottery ticket, the I wish we weren't stuck with Monroe guys started eyeing William Harris Crawford, former senator from Georgia and presently the Secretary of War. An interesting footnote about Crawford, had he been elected president, he would have been our first president to have personally committed murder. He killed a man in a duel in 1802, and wounded another guy in a second duel four years later. Andrew Jackson was eventually our first murderer president, but that came later. Crawford had some support in the caucus. Democrats from the South and West, at that time the West meant places like Kentucky and Tennessee, they liked him and he was well respected as a man of principle, if, you know, you overlook that whole murder thing. Some politicos writing in various newspapers suggested that once Tompkins fizzled, New York was bound to catch Crawford fever. There was just one problem. Crawford wasn't a candidate, at least not officially. Remember, he served in Madison's cabinet, and one of his fellow cabinet ministers was James Monroe. The position of the big man in the octagon house, or more like little man, Madison was only five foot one, was that Crawford, younger and with a longer future ahead of him, should wait for his turn. If he sat this one out, he could be the party's nominee in 1824. You didn't buck the Virginia dynasty. Incidentally, although he represented Georgia, William Crawford was actually born in Virginia. Had things worked out for him in 1824, he would have been the fourth president in a row to be born in the Old Dominion. As it happened, 1824 was kind of a bummer for Crawford. He had a stroke and had to withdraw, though he was nominated by a splinter group, 
of the Democratic-Republican Party. So anyway, back to March 16th, the caucus. Tompkins wasn't serious, Crawford was out, even though various Democratic newspapers were still talking up his non-candidacy. He took the step of telling Georgia senators just before the vote that he was not a candidate in 1816, but would like to be one in 1824, thank you very much. Either the Never Monroe folks didn't get the memo, or they didn't care, because when the vote was taken, Crawford got on the scoreboard, in a big way. Caucus tally, Monroe 65, Crawford 54. It was a victory for Monroe, but not the outright coronation that he, and the little man in the Octagon House, probably expected. That was basically the presidential election. It was over in March. Yes, in March. When they walked out of the caucus room in the old brick capital, the Democratic-Republican members knew they'd elected the next president of the United States. Vice president, too. They decided to give it to Tompkins, and yes, he could still be governor of New York. So much for a sense of drama. The big issue in selecting a president this way was not who they chose, but how they did it. Was the Congressional Caucus system undemocratic? Sure, but politicians in those days thought the alternatives were much worse. You want to have a national convention to choose your candidate? That will lead, and did lead, to the institution of the smoke-filled room, which made its first technical appearance at Chicago's Blackstone Hotel at the Republican Convention of 1920. And primaries, forget it. Talking about party primaries in 1816 would be like describing the Starship Enterprise to somebody driving a horse and buggy. But even that is something of a flawed analogy. Anyway, the real bomb that blew up in those congressional faces in 1816 had nothing to do with the presidential race. It was the act they'd passed a few days before, the Compensation Act of 1816. When the newspapers found out about it, they were pissed. The public is never happy to see politicians vote themselves money from the public trough, but the Compensation Act was a bridge too far. It wasn't that Congress raised its own pay. It was that the increase took effect immediately and retroactive to the beginning of the 14th Congress. That meant that congressmen and senators could take home $1,500 salary right then and there for the first session, which was already done, and then start drawing pay for the second session. Political newspapers were a big deal during the second decade. They both led and reflected public opinion. Also in those days, the press had no pretensions of being impartial, or, to use a term, fair and balanced. They were openly partisan. If you were a Federalist, you subscribed to a Federalist newspaper. If you were a Democratic-Republican, you subscribed to a Democratic one, and possibly the Daily National Intelligencer, the Washington, D.C. paper of record. The Daily National Intelligencer was to the Madison administration what Fox News is to today's Republican Party, basically a mouthpiece. Naturally, the Federalist Papers went berserk over the Compensation Act. They tried to paint it as another example of Democratic Party misrule. But the problem with this argument was that two-thirds of the Federalists left in Congress had voted for it. In fact, solid majorities of both parties voted for it, so the public outcry was largely bipartisan. Only the Daily National Intelligencer tried to spin the Compensation Act as a good thing. Everybody else was up in arms. Public anger at the Compensation Act fulminated over the summer. In America in 1816, the supreme expression of political will occurred not on Election Day, but on the 4th of July. Towns, especially in New England, typically had public feasts and barbecues, usually in the town square or commons, where, in addition to eating too much, People listened to public readings of the Declaration of Independence, sang patriotic songs, 
and drank repeated toasts with beer and cider to the president, our union, support the troops, etc. Often they drink the same number of toasts as there were states in the union. There were 18 states in 1816, Indiana was admitted in December, which meant 18 belts of hard cider. Americans drank a lot in the early 19th century. By the end of the 4th of July celebrations, unless you lived in a puritanical town, nearly everybody was soused, even the kids. Women participated in these political bacchanalias to a degree that might surprise you. The town square was a very democratic, small-d, democratic space. This summer, 1816, the talk at town picnics and barbecues was all about the Compensation Act. Speakers denounced it over and over again. Town councils and state legislatures passed resolutions crapping all over it. Members of Congress were burned in effigy in Georgia. People hated this law. There was more furor over the Compensation Act than over any other issue in America in recent years. So this, not the presidential race, was the big issue going into the fall elections. Lots of congressmen and senators knew they'd made a colossal screw-up, and they were going to pay heavily in their home districts, at least the ones who voted for it. Some, like John McLean of Ohio, wisely decided not to run again. A lot of his colleagues faced a bloodbath. And it was a bloodbath. Voters across the nation threw the rascals in Congress out at rates that seem astonishing and impossible today. In the 21st century, an incumbent member of Congress, whether House or Senate, will typically be re-elected 98% of the time. The percentage of congressmen or senators who are serving for the first time, freshmen, are much more likely to be filling the seat of someone who retired rather than an incumbent who was defeated for re-election. Not so in 1816. The turnover in that election was 20% higher than it was for comparable congresses around that time, and much, much higher than our paltry 2% today. Of 81 members of Congress who voted for the Compensation Act and decided to dare running for re-election, voters fired 66 of them. We've never had a voter revolt at the congressional level, anything like what happened in 1816. It wasn't just the ones who voted for the act, either. Voters punished a lot of the congressmen who deposed it. Out of 67 who voted against it, 36 got the boot. People were just plain old mad at Congress, and they took it out on them. So if you're looking for a dramatic electoral story out of the 1816 election, this is it. But wait, aren't we supposed to be electing a president here? I bet you forgot all about that. You're seeing the curious political priorities of 1816. Choosing the next president, or rubber stamping him as it were, was a secondary consideration. Weak and moribund though they were, there were still a few Federalists out there, and they sure as hell weren't going to cast their votes for James Monroe, even if he was 100% certain to win. The Federalist Party, which had no national-level apparatus, held no convention, no caucus. They never even attempted to field a candidate. The only question was which Federalist was prominent enough to have Federalist electors cast symbolic votes for him, to satisfy Federalist legislatures and voters who Monroe and the Democratic Republicans wouldn't carry. Enter Rufus King, Federalist Senator from New York, and your quintessential cold fish in politics. Everyone admired him, but nobody really liked him. King was a holdover from the 18th century. He was a signer of the Constitution and reportedly the last man to wear hose and buckled shoes on the floor of the U.S. Senate, and that was in the 1820s. King was really a great man. Quietly but steadily anti-slavery, 
King helped shepherd various pieces of legislation over his long career that started to seriously chip away at the slave trade, slaveholder power, and slavery itself. He had a huge family, and among his descendants were Admiral Bull Halsey, who helped win World War II against the Japanese, and Archibald Gracie, who survived the sinking of the Titanic. One of the last Federalists, and one of the strongest Federalists in New York, members of his party reluctantly convinced Rufus King to allow himself to be the Federalist nominee for governor of New York in 1816. His opponent was Daniel D. Tompkins, who you remember was also running for vice president on Monroe's ticket. New York state elections were held in April 1816, months before the various contests, most in the fall, that passed for a presidential election in the states that actually allowed real voters to cast a vote for president. New York, ironically, was not among those. King was a reluctant candidate, recruited only after the candidate the New York Federalists really wanted, William Van Ness, shocked all of them by telling him he didn't want to run, only after they'd gone to the trouble of nominating him. You'd think they have asked beforehand just to be sure, but politics didn't work that way in 1816. King did not campaign for governor of New York. For one thing, he was trapped in Washington. The Senate was still in session, so he couldn't go home to campaign. For another, when he finally was ready to leave, somebody warned him that there was a hitman out looking for him. To avoid assassination, King took a detour through Pennsylvania to get home. The election happened while he was on the road. Predictably, he got clowned. Tompkins won with 54% of the vote. After this humiliation, which occurred in April, King was too smart to allow himself to be nominated by whatever Federalists were still out there who were delusional enough to think it was even worth it to nominate a candidate for president. King declined to allow himself to be nominated. In fact, he wrote, quote, The federal party, in the sense of a party aiming at a political power, no longer exists. History books sometimes claim that Rufus King was the Federalist candidate for president in 1816. That's false. He was never nominated, never gave his consent to be on a ticket for president, never campaigned, never lifted a finger to try to secure the office. He was not a candidate for president. Basically, Rufus King was a political trash can. Federal selectors who would not or could not legally vote for a Democratic-Republican candidate for president threw away their worthless votes on King. He got 34 electoral votes to James Monroe's 183, a lopsided blowout landslide victory that came as a surprise to exactly no one. Even a dispute about the electoral votes of Indiana, a state that was only confirmed to be a state one week after the Electoral College meetings were held, couldn't attract enough attention to be a serious issue. Indiana's three electoral votes were ultimately counted for James Monroe. Incidentally, Congress did get the message about the Compensation Act. In the lame duck session following the election, congressmen and senators, many of them on their way out of public life, debated what the hell to do about the Compensation Act. Running true to form, Congress passed the buck. At the end of January 1817, they repealed the Compensation Act and left it to the next Congress to tackle the problem of congressional pay. Ironically, what happened with the Compensation Act was ultimately banned by an amendment to the Constitution, the 27th Amendment, which was originally proposed in 1791. The amendment states that Congress cannot raise its own pay and have it take effect until at least one congressional election has intervened. The 27th Amendment was proposed as part of the original Bill of Rights, 
but was not ratified by the proper number of states needed for it to take effect. It seemed a dead letter until the 1980s, when people suddenly discovered it again and began a renewed drive for its adoption. Unlike most other proposed amendments, there was no time limit on its ratification. The 27th Amendment was finally ratified in 1992, 201 years after its introduction. It remains the most recent amendment to the Constitution, and the only amendment to have occurred during the lifetime of many of you who are listening to this podcast right now. The next most recent amendment was passed in 1971. On Tuesday, March 4, 1817, James Monroe stood in front of the old brick Capitol and took the oath of office, which was administered by John Marshall, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The Capitol proper was still under reconstruction, and the White House was still a burnt-out shell. Monroe was the first president who took the oath of office and gave his inaugural address outdoors. He went on to serve two terms as president. The Federalists basically dried up and blew away in the wind after the 1816 election, and there was no opposition to Monroe's re-election in 1820. He is one of only two presidents ever to run unopposed, the other being George Washington. His wife, Elizabeth Courtright Monroe, was in poor health for most of his two terms. He retired in 1825 to Virginia and died in 1831 on the 4th of July, five years after the famous deaths of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, who both died on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Monroe was the last Revolutionary War veteran to be President of the United States and the last of the Virginia dynasty. So this was how we got our president 200 years ago, in 1816, a little different, you'll admit, from how it works today. If you like this podcast, please share, tell somebody about it. This is the pilot episode, and there will be much more to come from the fabulous second decade of the 19th century. I'd love it if you would join my Patreon. I'm at patreon.com slash seanmunger, and you can help support this show. My historical sources for this episode include the book 1816, America Rising, by C. Edward Skeen, published by the University Press of Kentucky, 2003, and The War of 1812, A Forgotten Conflict by Donald R. Hickey, published by the University of Illinois Press, 1989. Our theme music for this podcast is titled String Impromptu No. 1 by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.